And over and over again, God said, if you obey me fully, I will provide for you. And right afterwards, the Israelites are not obeying fully. and I don't know where this idea came from, that if you obey God, God will bless you. And if you disobey God, God will destroy you. When in the biblical story, over and over and over again, people rebel and disobey, and God blesses them because blessings of God are not wages. They are unmerited favor. They are gifts. Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and today we're back. Part two of the story of the Bible. My guest, Dr. Glenn Kreider, professor of theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Kreider, thank you so much for being back on the podcast. Thank you, sir. So we promised in episode one that uh, we're, we're doing three parts on the story of the Bible. We promised in episode one we would do a quick overview of the whole story, compact, couple minutes, do that at the beginning of every episode. So for a reminder, by uh, learning by repetition here, okay, uh, what's the story of the Bible in a couple minutes? Yeah, the Bible is this, um, this book made up of a variety of different genres of literature over a long period of time. You're convinced that the best way to read this this Bible is one grand story of redemption. Every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Every story has some conflict, context, some conflict, and then some resolution. Need another C word there uh, of that conflict. Hey, that's eighties, man. Which, you don't have to alliterate <laughs> anymore. It's okay. Uh, which then sets up the the sequels to those stories. So here's the the biblical story in a nutshell. There is something, and the Bible explains that there is something because there is a creator that God created everything that exists. Very early in the biblical story, we're only three chapters in to the first book of the Bible, there is conflict in that story. But there's also conflict in the first two chapters, too. There's an earth that is dark, chaotic, and empty. God redeems it. It's not good for the man to be alone. God responds. When they have this great act of rebellion, these creatures created in his image and likeness, given a very simple set of instructions, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and care for the world that I created. Eat from any tree of the garden except one. They eat from that one tree. So how does God respond? And from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 21, and through Revelation 20 in the canon of Scripture, we watch God responding to rebellion over and over and over again. And his response normatively is not condemnation, judgment, destruction, but mercy and grace towards those rebels, culminating in Revelation 21 and 22 in a new heaven and new earth, which is infinitely better than the world God created. We go from good to not good to even better than the original creation. That's where the story ends, but the story doesn't end because this earth and its inhabitants in the presence of God continues forever. The trajectory of the biblical story, because the trajectory 
of God's interaction with the world he created is that things get better and better and better and better and better. Great summary. Thank you very much. In part one, we covered chapter one, chapter two, most of chapter three of of Genesis. We're going to unpack the rest of the Old Testament story now with that foundation laid. So let's let's start at the end of chapter three, where we we really didn't get to last time, and pick up the story here. What happens after God? Um, I don't know what you call it, but he gives, uh, you know, instructions or uh, what do you call it? He, what, what do we call this right here? I'm, I'm having a blank, like a his, I'm going blank. Um, his judgment, his Jud- curse. Yeah. Yeah, his curse on- <laughs> <laughs> Not enough coffee for me this morning, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> the judgments that that come on. The, there's a serpent in the the woman and uh, and Adam. So and, and on all creation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Then what? Yeah. So real quickly. There, the reason why this is so incredibly important, the reason why we spend so much time here, is that that understanding the story of the scripture requires us to understand the themes that are laid out in the scripture. And what Genesis one, two, and three do is they 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 introduce us to these themes we see over and over again. And in this section here, there is a particular theme that that's important that we understand because of what follows. Uh, when God finished speaking, Adam turns and names his wife Eve. Some people read that as a positive sign that she will be the mother of all the living, I think is probably a reminder of the man's responsibility to name the animals, and he's naming her like she is inferior to him. And it's not that's a that would be a very negative way to read this. If right. That's, yeah. That's yeah. A, and I I think that actually is the point because yeah. what we see throughout human history it's actually part of one of the things we'll talk about in the law of Moses that there is a clear hierarchy a patriarchalism that the man over a woman that the man is worth twice as much as women male slaves are worth twice as much i mean there there, there really is a a patriarchy embedded in the biblical story and in human history and i think it's rooted in what happens in genesis 3 it's not in creation it's it's here because in creation they are equal and they have the same responsibilities which is why understanding the story is so critical when you flip open the bible to all it means a big book and this is the backdrop that you've got to understand unless well if you don't the the consequences can be severe it is it is not enough to say but the bible says that the Bible has to be read, and it has to be read in light of what we know about God. The the um, a pretty popular um, slogan is we use the clear to interpret the unclear. For most of my life, I thought that meant the clear verses to interpret the unclear verses. But one person's clear verses are another person's unclear verses. I think what that means is that we— we know how to read the story because we recognize these themes, because we know who God is. And when we read something in the Bible that seems to contradict who this God is, we realize we're probably not reading it correctly. He na- the naming happens, and then we read just this one simple sentence. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In the context of the Exodus, 
the Israelites know what happened here. This is a sacrifice because the sacrificial system is not only illustrated in the lives of Abraham. Well, it's actually the very next chapter, chapter mm-hmm. four, this conflict between Cain and Abel, Abraham, or Noah, and then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Uh, and then we have the law of Moses that has this explicit instructions about sacrifices which are necessary to restore a relationship with God for forgiveness of sin. The writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So this is, the Israelites surely would recognize that this is a an animal sacrifice. Uh, but it's also important for us to note that death enters the world, not the guilty, but death enters the world as a substitute for the guilty. Adam and Eve walk away and live for hundreds of years because their sin is atoned, to use the technical language, that, that substitutionary atonement through the shedding of blood and the shedding of blood of an animal is introduced very early in this story. Again, because we read this story through the lens of the Exodus, we know that these garments of skin came from animals, and we know that the sacrifice was carried out by the sinner. God never offers sacrifices, and human beings offer sacrifices for their sin. And you say, but the the text doesn't say that, and I would say it doesn't have to because we know how to read this story. Although we're reading it as the canon unfolds, we're reading it in the context of the Exodus. So these garments of skin, this is just the, these garments of skin came from animals who died to atone for Adam and Eve's sin. The guilty walk away forgiven because of atonement. And the, just stop and think for a second or two or three or four, but the horror of... We don't know how long it was after Adam gave names to the animals, but now he has to go to the animals that he named, and he chooses one, maybe two, to die to atone for his sin. He is forgiven because an animal dies. So back in our earlier podcast when we looked at uh, what God said in Genesis 2 that if you eat the tree, the fruit of this tree, on that day you will surely die. We made the point that they didn't die. Mm-hmm. In fact, they live a very, very long time. And that's an evidence of God, God's grace, and it is. But there was a death yes. that occurred yeah. on that day, and this is also a pattern. Yeah, so instead of the guilty dying, the guilty walk away forgiven, but an animal dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is there is death on that day. And so there's a sense of justice that we begin to see play out here that it's not simply that it's not simply that God just says, Oh, it's all fine. Mm, right. Don't worry about it. Just you know, I know I said that, but uh it's okay. It's not that. Uh there's still some rectifying mm-hmm. that needs to happen and it it's beginning. There's death in these animals here, and then this this continues, but it's going to culminate in the the ultimate um, sacrifice when we get to the story of Jesus. But that's mm-hmm. for a little while later. Yeah, and I think it's important here 
to emphasize that there there is no reason for God there's no reason that God could not have said there's way too many knots in there God could have said it's okay I, I forgive by divine declaration but that's not the way he works and so what he what he has embedded in this story is this principle if you will that sin needs to be atoned or the sinner needs to reap the consequences and the penalty of that sin, or as Paul says, the wages of sin. Uh, Then we hear this strange language from God, that God says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That's actually what the serpent said would happen. You would be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, I think the resolution to that tension is what the serpent told them was true, but it's not good. Being, they already were like God, and being satisfied with the knowledge they had, with the wisdom they had, is better than knowing, in, uh, knowing experientially the difference between good and evil. Having experiences of evil change us and shape—we've all, we all have experienced this, that you can't unsee what you've seen, you can't unfeel what you felt, you cannot undo what you've done. And having had that experience shaped and changed them in significant ways, they are kicked out of the garden. But they reproduce. <laughs> they continue to live for a number of years. Um, Many people have read this story and have read the biblical story as a return to the garden. So we left Eden. We're trying to get back to Eden. That's not the way we should read the story. Eden was a good place that we left to go to a place that is infinitely better. Texas, right? When I die, I may not go to heaven, but <laughs> Texas is close. <laughs> Uh, that was a Texas joke. <laughs> Neither one of us was serious, except yep. I was seriously quoting Tanya <laughs> Tucker. <laughs> Did she write that song? Probably not. That I don't know. That I don't know. Very next story. So what happens in, in, in a couple of times here in Genesis is a story it repeats itself. So there's the fall in chapter 3. There's the fall in chapter 4, the first murder. There's the, the earth is filled with wickedness, so God— um, in great grief and pain, I was taught in Sunday school that the flood is an angry God who judges his people. That language is not in the text. The, the language is that he regretted that he had made man, that he was his heart was filled with grief and pain, uh, so that he sends judgment on the earth, which doesn't solve the problem. Because every inclination of every human heart is always evil all the time. The first covenant that God makes in chapter 9, a covenant with Noah and his family and all living creatures and the earth itself. I will never again destroy the earth, even though the caretakers deserve that uh, consequence, that that result. Tower of Babel in chapter 11, rebellion again. How does God respond to their rebellion in chapter 11, so after the flood, the, the descendants of Noah settle in, in the plains of Shinar, and they start to build a tower so that they will not be scattered on the earth. 
How does God respond? He responds in judgment. He confuses their language to make it impossible for them to be united. But what comes out of that is the great blessings and benefit of multiculturalism, that that there are represented around the world, not only in foods, but I'd love to talk about food. I mean, be a, I mean there would be nothing wrong with eating mashed potatoes and steak every day, but it's nice to mix in a salad and a pizza and some enchiladas and some tacos and some noodles. And we have all these gifts and, you know, and we all have our favorite musical styles, but there are there's a great deal of diversity in musical styles and cultures and dress. So we often focus on the challenges of language. We often focus on the challenges that multiculturalism brings, but I, I think we see God's hand of provision and grace and mercy here. God loves diversity, and that ultimately, when the work of redemption is complete, there are people from every tongue and language worshiping God together around the throne, that, that the God who created man and woman, different but not the same, loves diversity. Can I throw something in here, too? Sure, at the you may. Tower of Babel story, because I think this is—you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, and, and I don't know where I got this either, but I think that this is also a pattern that we see showing up as we go along in the biblical story, and as if people were to read the Bible in more depth, I think you'd see this, that when God does judge, like he did here, the judgment is fulfilling his original intent and purpose for people. It's it, it's kind of it's pushing them into something that's actually good. So the problem at the Tower of Babel was everybody's hanging out at the same place, and God wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, not all be together in one location. The judgment, the scattering, fulfills what God had originally intended, which is actually good for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not uh, it's not that God says, you have to do it my way. I think basically what he's saying is, I'm going to accomplish my plan and it's going to be good for you, and it's going to be good for all of us, and um, you will not be able to thwart my plan. I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So they scatter and fill the whole earth. All the nations come out of that. And then God chooses this one person. Now, is it—sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> no, no. Is it also fair to say—well, I'll say it. You can tell me if it's fair. Uh, but— there's a sense in which Genesis 1 through 11 is is kind of the bare minimum that we need to know so we can get to Abraham and what God's doing here that you're about to talk about in chapter 12. Because it's there's so much that happens time-wise, mm-hmm. compacted into 11, hand, chapters. 11 chapter, handful of chapters. And two, two of those chapters tell the story of creation, and there are three chapters that are so the, to the flood. So... Yeah, we cover a long period of time in a very limited—I'm stretching out my arms to picture this. <laughs> you cover a long period of time to cover—cover cover a long period of time in a couple of chapters. And then the narrator slows down because he's selective. This is what every storyteller does. The storytellers—this is one of the challenges of writing 
fiction, for example, how much detail do you give? How much background do you give? It's the same thing with, with songwriting. I mean, I, how, I could say all of these things, but I don't have space for all of them unless I'm Bob Dylan and my songs go on forever. There, there is a, yeah, there, there's a, there's a clear indication of focus and it's not surprising because Abraham becomes God's first name. When we move into the New Testament, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we move into the New Testament, Abraham is the father of everyone who believes. He's the father of the Israelites. He's the father of Gentiles. Uh, he was circumcised before he before there was an Israel. I mean, Abraham is very important in the biblical story. And so we are introduced to the call of Abraham when he is in Ur of the Chaldees, which is probably Babylon. It's probably where the confusion of language happens, and God promises to bless him. In chapter 12, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a promise made to Abraham and to Abraham's seed, whose name is Jesus. This is not a promise to Israel. There is no Israel yet. This is a promise made to Abraham and to his descendants. Now, this promise is repeated to Israel, uh, that, that God promises to bless Israel and bless those who bless Israel. But the first promise is not made to them. It's made to Abraham because God's plan is for the nations. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That, that the God who created the heavens and the earth actually does intend to fill the earth with his people and with his knowledge, and he will do so through a number of nations. So we're you know, right back in, in chapter 10 where we have these nations scattered around the earth. They are all recipients of God's blessing, and they are all recipients coming through Abraham and his seed, whose name is Jesus. Leave your country, go to your people, go to the land that I will show you. Abraham gets down to the land of Canaan, looks around and says, this is not good, and he leaves. (laughs) And when he leaves, he offers his wife to anyone who will take. Let me just say it here. There are no heroes in the biblical story except Jesus, that all of these characters who are presented flaws and all, all scream that there must be something better, that there must be someone better. And what happens over time is that that expectation of a coming one who will make all things new, this expectation of a coming one who will fulfill all of these promises, this expectation of a coming one, coming one who will fulfill all these types and shadows and images becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And I, I think it's important, you do too, I think it's important that we that we read these stories in light of what we know ultimately will happen, but also allowing ourselves to, as it were, walk through the long period of time in which God is at work 
in his world. This Abraham story is filled with themes and tensions. There's the split between Abram and Lot, both of whom are righteous men, according to the New Testament. Um, Lot and Abram separate. Lot is in peril. He's kidnapped by these uh, marauding uh, kings. Abraham has to go to work and deliver him. And then we come to chapter 15. And uh, I think the gap between 12 and 15 literarily is important. In chapter 12, God made promises to Abraham. In chapter 15, he put the, cov- the promises in the form of a covenant. I know the language of 12 sounds covenantal, but there are two reasons why I think there's a, a gap here that is important. One is Genesis 12 is never called a covenant. Genesis 15 is. And secondly, Genesis 15 tells us why God made a covenant. Abraham asked God, first off, <laughs> he when God said, um, I am your shield, your very great reward, Abram said, what can you give me? So God took him outside. So he sh- picks only great guys. Yeah, that's right. the point that's, of the story, that's, right? Just, yeah, that's yeah. We haven't seen any great guys yet. The great <laughs> guys are dead. <laughs> e- Abel, the great man, a man, a righteous man. Enoch. Uh, Enoch's Enoch, gone. He's gone early. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there are no heroes in the biblical story except Jesus. And all of these people point forward, both men and women to the Jesus who is to come. Uh, so he, he showed him, said, you're going to have as many offspring as the stars in the sky. Abraham believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. God said, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur. And Abraham said, how can I know that I will gain possession? I think the narration makes it plain that God made a covenant. That's what follows. He made mm-hmm. a covenant with Abraham in order to help Abram trust him. Because in Abram's day, the way you guarantee your word is by making a covenant. So God came into Abram's world, came into Abram's culture, and used something that Abram knew and understood to guarantee his promises to him. This is exactly what God does in Genesis 3. This is what he does in Genesis 6. This is what he does over and over and over again. He comes into the world that he has created. And, and this is immediately followed by Abram's taking a second wife, in which Ishmael was born. I love this story uh, because Abram, and I don't love it for this reason, Abram doesn't trust God enough to wait. So he takes a second wife, has a child, things don't go well. And so he sends his wife pregnant wife off to die. And the God of Abraham appears and delivers her. This, she, Hagar is the only character in the biblical story that gets to name God. And she names God, not the God who sees, but the God who sees me. This Egyptian, African slave woman is seen by God and sent back to Abram because she will provide he will be he will provide for her there. Some have read this story as saying you should say to somebody who's in an abusive relationship, go back 
and endure the abuse. That's not what this story is about. Uh, God goes with her and protects her. Uh, And then he tells us that Abram was 86 years old when this happened. Very next chapter, Abram is 99 years old, and God adds the sign of circumcision to the covenant. And then we have this interesting story in chapter 18 of Abram pleading for the people of Sodom. God comes to Abram, has lunch with him, and says, if I'm going to bless Abram, don't I have—his name has been changed to Abraham now—don't I have the responsibility to let him know what I'm about to do? And Abram bargains with God, rooted in God's justice. Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? I'm in Genesis 18. That's verse 25. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? To destroy the righteous along with the wicked. How about if there are 50 righteous in the city? Will you deliver the city? And God says, of course. About 45. 40? 30? 20? 10? And God agrees. And everything in me, everything in us who knows the character of God wants Abraham to say, how about if there's one? Because God, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both say, God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Prophet Prophet Micah says, you are a God who delights in showing mercy. So should it have been not one, but hey, how about you just don't do it at all? That would have been even better. And in fact, that would have demonstrated that Abraham does understand the character of his God. Because he is a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy and deliverance. There are not ten in the city. There are only four. And God does what he's under no obligation because he is merciful and compassion. He delivers Lot's family from judgment. And that difficult story with Lot and his two daughters, um, which is another demonstration of how graphic, um, how not safe for the whole family. Uh, Many of the stories are in the Scripture. Finally, Isaac is born. Oh, and by the way, we have another story of Abraham sacrificing his wife, Sarah, uh, offering her to anyone who will take her. In chapter 20, we are told he did this regularly everywhere he went. Isaac is born. Hagar and her son are sent off into the wilderness, and God tests Abraham, telling him to go sacrifice his son. We could spend the rest of the time time talking about that story. Let me just say that if if we read Genesis 22 alongside of Genesis 18, we should be asking, 
Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That's the question Abraham asks back in 18 for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says nothing when God asks him to do what he calls an abomination. Remember the Israelites have the law of Moses, and they know that what God has said multiple times is it is an abomination to offer human sacrifice. And the height of abomination, we just sacrifice your son. It's the most obvious thing God could have said that Abraham would have said, no. Right. That you, you never ask. You should, no. But he doesn't say a word. He doesn't. He sets out to do it, and they travel for three days before God stops him. This is important. As many people have observed, God never wanted Abraham to sacrifice his son. We know that because he stopped him. So what did, what is the point of this test? The text tells us this is a test, and the test tells us that God, that Abraham passed the test. What is the test? I think the test is, do you actually know who I am? Abraham thought that man, I have to do whatever you tell me to. When if you, if Abraham had known who God was, he would have pushed back like he did with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But finally, with part of the story that is often overlooked is that Abraham and Isaac are never together again until Abraham is dead. And Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah don't live together anymore either. That the trauma that this story inflicted on both Abraham and his son is horrific. And to response to the people who say the trauma and its effects is a recent phenomenon, and these characters were strong and powerful, I would, I would just simply remind you that trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder might be a recent diagnosis. It's not a recent phenomenon. People around the world have suffered serious trauma, and trauma changes us. It changes us in significant, uh, in significant ways. And um, yeah, we could talk all day about that too. Along comes Isaac. Well, but let me throw oh. this in here. Just in the terms of the big story, though, as we oh, jump yeah. back, this is the fam- This is the man. This is the family. This is the son, Isaac through whom God has made all these promises, the the way that God is going to go about fixing what happened in Genesis 3 in the fall and 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 renewing, restoring, redeeming the earth, uh, humanity, is through this family with this—it's a great—you think your family's got problems. Yeah. It's through this family right here. And I think it's also important, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, that Abraham believed that, and he believed that God would fulfill mm-hmm. the promises through Isaac, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac, and that the way Abraham made sense of that—this is amazing—the way Abraham made sense of that, you're asking me to kill the one through whom you will bless the earth. The only way to make sense of that is resurrection, that Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead in short, Abraham believed the gospel long before there was Jesus. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. 
that honoring Abraham for his belief in God's ability to resurrect the dead doesn't keep us from criticizing Abraham for being willing to be the cause of Isaac's death so that God would raise him from the dead. Um, yeah, I, I, it is important that we recognize Abraham's a man of faith, and Abraham's faith, like yours and mine, is not pure and perfect and I need another P word. <laughs> it's not pure and perfect, but his his he's wrestling with who this God actually is. And to be fair to him, he doesn't have the New Testament. To be fair to him, he doesn't know that this is all fulfilled in the Messiah Jesus. He 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 knows a great deal about the character of this God. So I, I don't want to be heard as piling on Abraham. I want to be heard as saying, you know, in a lot of ways, we as the children of Abraham are just like him. And we struggle to understand who this God is. I'd love to be able to tell you I get it right all the time. But well, you I'm, are a professor. I would be. I'm a so, professor, not a theological a, yeah. study. So <laughs> Isaac, Jacob, and in, in the narrative of the book of Genesis, it is hard to miss that Abraham is not a man whose obedience is perfect and should be emulated. Isaac is even less so. Jacob, oh my goodness. Uh, we can find in Abraham some things to honor. Jacob is just really hard. He is a deceiver. He's a liar. That's what his name means. And every time he opens his mouth, I, mean, I, I, I love this story where he plots with his mother to steal the birthright from his brother. Um, and Esau is mad and says, I'm going to kill you. So Jacob runs away. He's away for 20 years. He ends up marrying two women because he's out-tricked by a trickster. And <laughs> uh, again, the story that I don't remember them teaching me when I was in Sunday school as a five-year-old, except I do remember them teaching me the story, but I didn't really understand what's happening here. So he's making his way back to the land, and he gets word that Esau is coming to him. And Jacob is afraid. So he puts his least favorite concubine and her children, and then his out in front, and then his sec his favorite concubine and her children, and then his favorite his least favorite wife and her children, and then his favorite wife and her children, Benjamin and Joseph, and he goes back on the other side of the river. And God comes to him and wrestles with him all night long. The God who came to Abraham had lunch with him. The God who comes to Esau to uh, Jacob, Jacob wins, which can only be true if God allows him to win. Um, and the Lord blesses him, and Jacob appears to be a, a changed man. He crosses the river, passes 
his wife, his second wife, concubine, and meets Esau running to him. And Esau hugs him. And Jacob looks at him and says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God from a man who looked into the face of God all night long. And Esau says, you know, we should live together, you and me. We're brothers. We've been apart way too long. And Jacob says, great idea. Let's, Let's do that. You go, and then I'll come and join you. Esau leaves, and Jacob goes exactly the opposite direction. He has no intention of living with the man who, of whom he was afraid, who has forgiven him. And all kinds of things happen in his family. And then we come to Joseph. This is a point I wanted to make. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are presented warts and all. In fact, there's not a great deal of good in their stories. Then we meet Joseph, who is an idealized character. He's he's presented as if he's perfect in every way. And it seems to me that this is making a contrast between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people that God chooses, and Joseph, who is an idealized character who I think represents the Messiah who is to come. Skip over a number of years, and the Israelites are in Egypt, and they are enslaved. And this story is the context for what follows. And what happens prior to the Exodus is the foundation, the context for this story. 400 years, which God had predicted to Abraham in advance, the 400 years and the Israelites are enslaved. And God chooses another man, Moses, who's a murderer, who for every reason that God, every time God tells him, this is what I want you to do, Moses gives a reason why that's a bad idea. I don't think so. And eventually Moses says, I'm not going. And God said, yes, you are. (laughs) Because my plan is not dependent upon you, but you're going to do what I told you to do. And when Moses goes down to Egypt and says to the Pharaoh, let my people go, the Pharaoh says, no, who are you? And who is God? Lazy, that's what you are. And things get worse for the Israelites than they were before. And I love this interaction between Moses and God. When Moses says to God, is that why you brought me here? To make things worse for them? And God says, yeah, it's what I told you. That Pharaoh will not let the people go until I strike him with a mighty hand. Love to be able to tell you that being a follower of Jesus means that your life will go really well. No, we live in a fallen world. Everything is broken, and eventually everybody dies, which would be a really tragic story if that were the end of it. And it also would be a really tragic story if there were not these incredible experiences of God's presence and his preservation and protection um, during the midst of this trail of tears. Ten plagues. 
river turns to blood, gnats, frogs, darkness, animals die. I don't have them in order. And eventually, and every single time after the plague, the Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. And then he changes his mind. And many times as the narrative unfolds, we hear the Pharaoh changed his mind. Other times we hear God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. And there's this great tension between how God uses the free choices of the Pharaoh and how God is at work in the choices that Pharaoh makes. And there's a tension, and it's the tension that you or I won't resolve because people have been wrestling with that tension as long as there have been people trying to make sense of the relationship between God's sovereignty and providence and human responsibility. Let me just say, uh, I think it's possible to believe in a God who is sovereign over the world that he created and that everything is part of his plan, and also believe that human beings make choices freely, not by compulsion, that we we freely choose what we choose, and but our choices are determined before the creation of the world. And then we come to the last of the plagues. This is perhaps my least favorite story in the Bible, where God seems to say that I will come through the land and destroy the firstborn in every house unless there is blood put over the door. So the Israelites, here's why that makes me uncomfortable. Because the God we see in the scripture is a God who regularly, consistently, over and over again, responds to rebellion in mercy and grace. But here, he seems to respond with judgment and death. But he provides redemption. All that's required is you offer the sacrifice of a lamb, eat the meat, put the blood over the door, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It is my conviction that what could have happened, I almost said should have happened, what could have happened is that the Israelites who cared about their neighbors, the Israelites who cared about the Egyptians, would have said to them, I don't want your child to die. So would you join us in this ceremony? But the, 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 the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, which is also this great theme, it's um, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He is this lamb who provides for redemption. The Israelites are now delivered, but God's not finished. So he has the Israelites wander around in the wilderness, and the, the Pharaoh and his armies chase them down. And if there is a familiar, if there's a top five familiar biblical stories, the crossing <laughs> of the Red Sea is yeah. one of them. Yeah. And the Israelites walk through on dry ground, and the Egyptians and the soldiers and the horses and the riders are drowned in the water. There's this great song of Moses and Miriam singing 
about the great deliverance they've experienced. And you would think 10 plagues where God demonstrated his power, the deliverance of his people at the, uh, at the Red Sea, uh, that, that this would be a people who would believe and would trust God. But they don't. And that over and over and over again, they're whining and complaining. They don't, they complain that they don't have water, so God gives them water. They complain that they don't have food, so God gives them manna. They complain that they don't like the manna, so God gives them <laughs> quail. Um, and over and over again, God said, if you obey me fully, I will provide for you. And right afterwards, the Israelites are not obeying fully. And I don't know where this idea came from, that if you obey God, God will bless you. And if you disobey God, God will destroy you. When in the biblical story, over and over and over again, people rebel and disobey, and God blesses them because blessings of God are not wages. They are unmerited favor. They are gifts. And I'm not arguing that we should rebel against God in order to get more blessing. That's exactly what Paul argues in Romans chapter 6. Meganoito, you never don't talk that way. Instead, recognize that this is the way God works in the biblical story. And we should recognize this is the way God works in our lives. And you don't have to be a Christian to recognize that, 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 you, that we have all received things we haven't earned, that we haven't deserved. And I think deep down inside, every person really knows that, that, that I, have re- I have gotten some of the things I've gotten because I've worked for them. But there have been things that God has blessed me with that I never set out. A friendship with you wasn't something that I'm going to. This was a gift from uh, a relationship with my wife. Um, over and over and over again. And then God instructs Moses to gather the people at the mountain at Mount Sinai, and. He tells them, I'm going to show up. And he, he, he does in chapter 19 with this great pyrotechnic display, mountains quaking, fire, like a volcano exploding. And the Israelites are afraid for a short period of time. God gives the Ten Commandments, gives the rest of the law. Forty days later, the Israelites look around and say, where's Moses? And where's that God who was on the mountain? What we need is a God we can see. So they ask Aaron to make them a God that they can worship. And he takes gold and forms it into a golden calf. It was pretty old before somebody helped me to understand that this is a pretty significant skill task to be able to melt down gold to create in the middle of the wilderness. To be able to melt down in the middle of the wilderness, to be able to melt down gold, make a cast and form this. 
the story Moses, the story that Aaron tells Moses is, you wouldn't believe it's a miracle. I just threw it into the fire and I'll poof this camp. I'll poof this calf. And God is angry, tells Moses, I'm going to kill them. Get out of my way. Moses says, no, you're not. Because if you do that, your reputation will be at risk. If you do that, the people will think the only reason you brought your people out here was to destroy them. No, you're not. And I, I read that story, and I think maybe Moses wanted Abraham to do the same thing. But he does send Moses down. Moses is, is angry, puts the calf into the water, makes him drink it. Plague strikes the people. And then a couple of chapters later, Moses hears God say, you take the people and go to the land because I will keep my promises. And Moses hears the horror in that command, and he realizes that Moses, that God is telling him to go and that God will not go with them. And Moses says, is in Exodus 32 and 3, Moses says to the Lord, the only thing that marks us as different from the nations around us is that we have a God who is present with us. Your presence is what marks us as different. And God relents and says, I'm going to do that because you asked. I will go with you into the land. Fast forward, the book of Numbers, the Israelites are uh, poised to go into the land, uh, and they send spies to check out the land. The spies come back and say, it's a great land, but the, the people there are really scary. And the people agree with the minority report, the majority report, and they refuse to go into the land. And once again, we hear God. Numbers 14, God says, get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to kill them. And Moses says, no, you're not. Remember what you told me back in Exodus 34? You told me you were a God who's merciful, compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness. And God says, yeah, you're right. Now, Clearly, this is anthropomorphic language. Clearly, this is God presenting himself as if he and Moses are equals. But he says, um, but not a single one of these people will survive to go into the land. Forty years wandering in the wilderness. We come to Deuteronomy chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 29. And Moses rehearses for this generation how God has treated them. And he said, as you were wandering around in the wilderness, God was with you. His presence was always with you. He fed you every day. He gave you water. He, he protected you from sickness. Your feet didn't swell. Your shoes never wore out. Because this is, this is the, the God who is, a God who is merciful, compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness. The story of Joshua, Judges gets the people into the land, all kinds of fun battle scenes in those stories. Uh, the presence of God with his people. And once again, the, the, the Israelites say, you know, we're, we're different from the nations around us. They have kings. We want a king. So they ask Samuel the prophet, give us a king. The law of Moses had said, you will have a king. But 
it's on God's timetable, not theirs. I, I love this story too. Samuel says, you sure you want a king? He will tax you. He'll take your money. He'll enslave your children. Uh, he'll And he'll, he'll make life hard for you. Are you sure you want a king? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and so we get, to, we get Saul, then David, the man after God's own heart, which clearly doesn't mean that David was a figure to be emulated and followed. I think after God's own heart means that when confronted with the sin in the Bathsheba incident, David's response was to repent, to acknowledge his sin. And then we have this long list of kings after David. Solomon, by the way, who enslaves his people. It's ironic that people who had been enslaved in Egypt, when they are in power, enslave others and built a city and houses and a temple in the backs of slaves. King after king after king. It's hard to find in those kings a righteous king to be emulated. They are they are not people to be emulated, but they are skipped over that covenant that God made with David and promised that his kingdom would never end. You will always have descendants on the throne, all of which is looking forward ultimately to an eternal kingdom uh, under the reign of the Messiah King, king after king after king. Eventually, they end up in in exile in Babylon, which took hundreds of years because God is long-suffering and patient. Uh, the prophets come along and have two messages. One is a message of impending judgment unless you repent, and a message of the kingdom of God. And what um, and what links those two together, I think, is the promise of the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, a day of darkness, a day of uh, when a man, as Micah puts it, reaches out for a for a bear and is struck by a lion. That there is judgment that is coming that precedes the 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 coming of the kingdom. The psalmist, the the hymn book of the Israelites, many of which were written by David, not all of them. Uh, and they they fall into a couple of categories, this praise and worship for the God who has and will deliver us, but also the lament that we are not experiencing that yet. So the grief and pain and honesty and acknowledgement that we live in a fallen and broken world, and yet there is hope that the God who promises a kingdom that never ends will fulfill it, will carry it out. We have the wisdom sayings of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, that there are principles that make life work better than others. It's not a promise if you raise up your child in the way he should go, he will not depart from it. But generally speaking, the children of godly, moral people have a higher than then have a higher incidence of morality and, and Christianity than those who were raised in abusive homes. But even there, God is merciful and redemptive. Uh, it's, it is to go outside of the Bible. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Diligence, 
often leads to prosperity, uh, but not always. These are generally That's why they're called Proverbs. That's why they're called Proverbs. (laughs) Yeah, they're not promises, um, which is part of the the need to read the Bible and recognize the genres in the Scripture, which brings us then to the end of the, 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 the Hebrew Scriptures. We have 39 books. From Genesis through Malachi, the Israelites, the Jews, the rabbis divided them into the law, the prophets, and the writings. Their canon, their order is a little bit different than ours, uh, than, than, than Christians. But we come to the very end of the biblical story, and we hear Malachi predict the day of the Lord is coming, a day of judgment is coming, a day of... Uh, uh, it'll be followed by a um, by a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and prosperity. Elijah comes before the day of the Lord, and then we have about four hundred years of silence. The four hundred years of silence does not mean that God is not working during those four hundred years. Of course, He is. It just means God, who had been speaking through prophets starting with Moses all the way through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, that God stopped speaking. And it's almost like he is setting the stage for some new thing, some some new thing, some new age which is dawning. And so it would be one thing if there was, you know, if you had to wait a week, <laughs> you had to wait a month, even a year, but 400 years is a long time. Yeah, And somewhere along the line, your memory starts to fade. And somewhere along the line, there's a generation that follows a generation that follows a generation that had never known what it's like to hear a prophet speak for God. God, God has a plan. And he's working that plan. In the midst of that unfolding plan, it is sometimes hard to see what he is doing. This is why understanding who this God is and the work of redemption that he is carrying out helps us to interpret what we're going through today. What we're going through is real, but it's connected to something that one day we might understand when ultimately God makes everything new. That's a real quick summary of a long period of time. It it was very well done. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me reading through the Old Testament, even just hearing it, talking it through here with you, but reading it especially, you get to the end and we're talking about the story of the Bible. There's no end. It's just it's just going along. Everything's happened that we've been talking about, and then it just stops. And it would be a really poorly constructed story if it stopped where we're stopping today. So fortunately, uh, it doesn't stop. It doesn't <laughs> stop here. It keeps going, and and the best really is uh, is yet to come. So we're gonna pick it up next episode 
the third in our three-part series here on the story of the Bible. We'll pick it up in the New Testament and when Jesus shows up and everything does change. So thank you so much, Dr. Kreider, for being my guest. This was, this was fun. It was a good conversation. You're welcome. Yeah, very, very helpful. Uh, thank you, everybody, too, for listening, and we sure hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.